it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. After a three-year hiatus, Bill Simmons is back with his NBA trade value rankings for the 2018 and 2019 season. You can check that out, as well as our year-in-review articles wrapping up everything 2018 on the site. Also, throughout the holidays, we will be sticking to our regular podcast schedule, so make sure to tune in to your favorite shows as usual. Happy holidays from The Ringer. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Bird Box. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. This is uh, this is the Oscar show, Amanda. Hello. Welcome Hi, to Sean. 2019. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. We're here to talk about the Oscars, but really we're here to talk about the Golden Globes because of course the Golden Globes are this weekend. We're going to preview this lovely award show. Amanda, are you ready to do this? I am. I have my picks and everything. We have ballots. We want to know about your ballots, but first we'll share ours. Where should we begin? What category? Let's start with your favorite category. Okay. You want to you just lead this in? You put it number one on our rundown here, and I don't want to steal your glory in the new year, Sean. So this is Best Motion Picture Animated, which well, is a category that I enjoy uh, and a category that Amanda does not. We'll talk a little bit about why you don't later in the show, but let's just, let's just go through these picks. We're going to mm-hmm. be as efficient as possible because later in the show, we have an interview with Pavel Pavlikowski, the filmmaker who made a movie called Cold War, which you and I talked about last week on this show. Yeah. Beautiful film. Great conversation with him. We want you to be able to check that out. So let's get right into those ballots. Here are the five nominees for Animated. Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, Mirai, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Amanda, how many of these movies have you seen? Two. Oh, two. Oh. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Which ones? I've seen Incredibles 2. Yeah. And I've seen Isle of Dogs. Okay. Yeah. Isle of Dogs is sort of the adult entry here. Eh. Wes Anderson's film. Yes. Ish. Sort of. Uh, complex movie that we haven't, I haven't really talked to anybody on this show about that movie, but we're not going to do that right now. No. Uh, what's your pick? Uh, Incredibles 2. Okay. So I went Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Yeah. And... I, I don't want to say too much about this because we're going to focus a little bit more on this category for the Oscars later in the show because there's that divide is very interesting to mm-hmm. me. So let's just go straight to the next category. Okay. I can't even give you my one-sentence reasoning. Okay. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. I just think that superhero bias will work against Spider-Verse in this context. Incredibles 2 is a superhero movie. Yes, but they don't think of it the same way. Okay. It's not a Marvel movie. You okay. know, it's not of it's not of the universe. It doesn't have the Marvel creep. And I think that voters' brains can only expand so far right now. Let's hold on to that thought because we're definitely going to come back there. Next category, best motion picture, foreign language. Here are the, here are the nominees. Yes. Cape or no, Girl, Never Look Away, Roma, Shoplifters. Mm-hmm. One, where's Cold War? True. Two, where's Burning? True. Three, this category is fine. It's, it's Roma, right? Yes, because Roma can't compete in the best picture category. So the voters will give this to Roma. Okay. This is really boring. I I, I find the, the sort of foreign nature of the Hollywood mm-hmm. Foreign Press Association to yeah. be the most confounding part of this. These nominees are super weird. Roma not being able to compete in that category makes this even more obviated. I want. Do they give this category out on television? They, do they give them all out on television? There's so many awards because television is included, and we will not be talking about TV here, by the way. I honestly don't remember, which is more a testament to the fact that I haven't paid attention to this category in past years. Shame on me. Yeah. I think they will give it out this year just because they didn't fix their rules in time. Yeah, an opportunity to get Quaron on stage, yeah. a Netflix moment. Yes. Okay, next category. We're going through sort of the soft early categories. Yeah. This is the beginning of the show. Yeah. Best original score motion picture. Your nominees are Marco Beltrami for A Quiet Place, Alexander Desplat for Isle of Dogs, Ludwig Gorenson for Black Panther. I'm really enjoying my pronunciation here. 
Justin Hurwitz, first man, and Mark Shaman for Mary Poppins Returns. What do you got? I went with Justin Hurwitz for first man. Okay. Which is partly because first man was essentially otherwise ignored by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. So I'm like, if they're thinking about it, then maybe they will vote for this. He also won for La La Land. They like to uh, crown someone recognizable and Displat won last year. So I love your reasoning. Yeah. I think Hurwitz's score is the best of the bunch. Yeah. I think this is also much like the foreign film category, missing two or three of the best scores of the year. Right. I don't know where Nicholas Bertel is for If Beale Street Could Talk or Vice. Yes. Um, I don't know where the old man of the gun score is. I love that score. Uh, I picked Mark Shaman. And it, I think it's just because that's a famous movie that people are interested in. And First Man is not a famous movie. Yeah. Um, Mary Poppins Returns is probably the third biggest hit out of this bunch. I think there's an outside chance that Ludwig Göransson gets in here. Do you know much about Ludwig? I don't. Um, he most famously is a longtime collaborator of Donald Glover's. Oh. And a lot of Childish Gambino songs are composed by him. And Gorenson's kind of making a move mm-hmm. into scoring. And that's a great score, too. Interesting thing when, like, a Swedish guy makes African music. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless. Okay. We'll go to the next category. Best original song motion picture. This is going to be easy, right? Yeah. This is shallow. Okay. So yeah. I'll, read the, I'll read the nominees. All the Stars, Black Panther. Good song. Girl in the Movies, Dumplin'. Never heard it. Requiem for please, a Private War. <laughs> please respect Dolly Parton. Just okay. time out. Okay. All right. All right. Keep moving. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, Girl in the Movies, Dumplin'. Requiem for a Private War, a Private War, uh, which is an Annie Lennox song that just plays over the end credits of A Private War. I mean, weird flex, but okay. Okay. Uh, Revelation Boy Erased. I believe that's Troy Sivan. Mm, yes, that's correct. Uh, who also co-stars in yeah. Boy Erased. And Shallow, A Star is Born. Mm-hmm. What happens if Shallow doesn't win? Will people, will people be screaming and, and tearing their skin off? Because like the, this category, famously, not on this award show, but on yeah. the Oscars in particular, is a car crash. Like we, we should definitely focus on it in a future episode. But I, I feel like it'd be fascinating if they got it wrong. I think that there's a decent chance at the Oscars that they get it wrong. I keep fixating on the fact, and I know I mentioned this last week, but there's a short list for the best Oscar song. And there are two Mary Poppins songs on there and only one A Star Is Born song. And that is like trouble. That is a big flashing warning sign. This, you know, we've talked about it a lot and I don't want to over-rely on the Golden Globes as star fuckers, but a little bit... I mean, you just have to pick Lady Gaga on this one. They just, they will. They picked her for American Horror Story. Like, come on, they will. Wow. So that's that's tough for Annie Lennox. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I think it'll be shallow. There's no musical performances at the Globes, right? Not in past years. Okay. Do you they got to keep it moving. Should there be? No. I am, um, I find, we've talked about this. I find musical performances, live musical performances at award shows excruciating. Mm-hmm. The Grammys are a real trial for me every year. And the Oscars are always really awkward. And the nice part about the Golden Globes is they keep it moving. So okay. keep Side, it moving. Sidebar, do you do you like the musical performances during the Independent Spirit Awards when the hosts sort of like do a musical number about one of the films nominated? If it's good, yeah. Like, okay. I mean, Mulaney and Kroll don't, really sing, do they? Yeah, it's sort of a speak sing. Yeah, It's a Lin-Manuel fine. Miranda style. I also don't want to pretend that I was like above Billy Crystal, you know, doing a fake thing mm-hmm. in the English Patient plane, which yeah. is a reference you don't understand, but... Um, <laughs> I'm familiar with that <laughs> yeah, film, okay. having, though I have not seen it. Right. Anyway, I, you know, I enjoy that. If you can pull it off, there's kind of a corny razzmatazz aspect to those performances and also 
the awards shows that I don't mind. It's when someone is really earnestly just like, I'm going to, it's me and my guitar, you know, singing about my soul to you based on the movie Dumplin' that I'm like, <laughs> and again, I was like, I loved Dolly Parton could sell it. But, you know, if it weren't Dolly Parton, no thanks. No okay. thanks. I'm going to make a suggestion. In a couple of weeks when we focus on this category for the Oscars, yeah. you and I will sing oh, great. each song. Okay. That'll full. be wonderful. Okay. That'll be good radio. Should we go to acting? Let's do it. So there's six acting categories, and I, I can't for the life of me understand why they break this up this way. This is the, the dumbest and most confusing award show, but there are two supporting categories for actor and actress, mm-hmm. and then there are two best actor categories for drama and musical comedy, and then there are two best actress categories for drama and musical comedy. Why do they do this? Uh, to get more celebrities on the screen? But then make it eight. Yeah, just I, give us best supporting in the two in the split categories. I'm not one of the 88 members of the or the 92 members of the AHFPA, man. I don't know. This shadow clan okay. must answer for my questions. All That's right. all I'm saying. Great. Okay. Let's start with best actress in a supporting role in any motion picture. That's how they phrase it. In any motion picture. Here are the nominees. Amy Adams Vice, Claire Foy, First Man, Your Girl, Regina King, If Beale Street Could Talk, Emma Stone, The Favorite, Rachel Vice, The Favorite. Who do you got? I went with Regina King. Okay. Though I think that there's a strong chance for Amy Adams. I chose Amy Adams. Yeah. Well, and that'll be interesting. I will say the gold derby odds are vanishingly thin between these two. I believe it's like four to one and 45 to 11, like something like that. Yeah. Like that's what splits the two of them, which means they have no idea. They really just don't know. Right. It'll be, this is one of those like bellwethery kind of awards. Yes. Um, because it will put Regina King at the forefront of voters' minds if she's up there r- receiving an award and giving a speech, which mm-hmm. is not something we've seen a lot from her. And not a lot of people have seen if Beale Street could talk just generally in the world. That's true. Amy Adams, of course, is very famous and is often nominated for supporting actress and, of course, has never won. If she wins here and she is more famous than Regina King, mm-hmm. I think the the sort of on-ramp to the Amy Adams campaign fully begins. If Regina King wins, I think it kind of reshuffles the deck a little bit. You think Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz cancel each other out? I do. There's also one quirk I want to note, which is Regina King is also nominated for TV miniseries. I really think there's a case where she wins a TV miniseries and Amy Adams wins in this category. And then they're both still at the forefront of voters' minds. Um, That's true. I The Golden Globes does tend to simplify things. They pick the most obvious. And I still think Regina King has won more Critics Awards and is a little bit more the Captain Obvious, which is why I went with her. Also, I just like the performance. But, I do too. She's wonderful. Yeah. Um, this is a pretty pretty strong category. Yeah. This is five really good nominees um, for an award show that tends to fuck things up. This This is a good race. Let's go to best best actor in a supporting role in any motion picture. Here are the nominees: Mahershala Ali, Green Book; Timothy Chalamet, Beautiful Boy; Adam Driver, Black Klansman; Richard E. Grant, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And Sam Rockwell for Vice. This has become a curiouser and curiouser category. Would you agree? Yes. I don't quite know where to put my finger. I do want to say I don't think Timothy Chalamet has any chance to win. I I watched this movie again, and I think that this is a really great performance. And I, I'm kind of confused why there's not—what I, I, I thought was going to happen here was they didn't take care of him last year for Best Actor, but it was his, sort of his arrival moment. And then what they tend to do is they reward people a year late, even young actors a year mm-hmm. late for, their, for their, their big role. This was a good opportunity to, to reward him. And, you know, Mahershala, of course, has already won in this category. Adam Driver is oncoming, but I think he's probably going to be a Best Actor candidate for years to come. Richard E. Grant— I get it. It's a, like it's time sort of for the with, with Nail and I fans. And Rockwell won Best Actor last year. So this is a really weird category. And I, I feel like there could be a Chalamet campaign if somebody actually puts some effort towards it. 
though that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah. Do you agree? I, I didn't like the Chalamet performance. Oh, tell me yeah, why. I'm I just, shocked. I, I felt it was really mannered and drama school instead mm-hmm. of actual emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think that he was... You could see him putting on the imagination cloak a bit more than you could in Call Me By Your Name. And I mm-hmm. think Chalamet is very good. And I think he, like Adam Driver, will also be a Best Actor nominee for years and years to come. So this, it, this to me, seems like a courtesy nomination of, we see you, we'll, we'll get you next time. But I just didn't really respond to that mm-hmm. performance as much as other people. I don't think that you're wrong in terms of placing him as kind of the next great actor. And voting bodies really do like to do that. I think a nomination suffices in this. Mm-hmm. And I think it seems more likely to me that there would be a Richard Grant out of left field because the people really do like to use this category to crown latecomers as well. You know, people who never really got their shot. No, it's I don't true. know. I think it's early for Chalamet. And this performance isn't uh, noisy enough. Yeah, I get that. I mean, Grant has really been working hard on the campaign trail. He's been giving interviews left and right. He seems like a lovely man. I, I can see that there is a huge push on his part in the way that there is no push for Chalamet. There's very not a very big push for Driver, mm-hmm. I think, because they're, they're just accepting that they have no shot to win. So this feels like in this race, in the Globes race, mm-hmm. it feels like Mahershala, Richard E. Grant, and Sam Rockwell are sort of the contenders. Yes. Um, I chose Mahershala. Who did you choose? I Here's what I wrote down. Mahershala Ali, in parentheses, but maybe I will change this to Sam Rockwell, yeah. which was me last late last night trying to— I think you're right. I think it will be Mahershala. We both agree. Again, the Globes kind of do the what's sitting right in front of them. Mahershala has been the favorite. I think there will be some misplaced guilt about— this movie and how this character was handled and Mm -hmm. wanting to put a vote of confidence in the actor. And he's, he is just so charismatic, even given the many problems that have come to light in this particular character, as well as the movie in general. The Sam Rockwell performance is just so a best supporting actor candy performance in a way that I could see it happening again, even if he won last year. They really like flashy, recognizable, that person's working. And that is, I mean, he's hilarious. I he's, I agree with you. I, I've, you know. It's very, it's very close to what they like to reward, yeah. which is famous guy imitating famous guy in a kind of a rollicking role that is essential to the movie, but doesn't take up too much space. And, you know, Rockwell... I think it's fun and they know that he's going to, he would give a fun speech and, yeah. you know, I, Mahershala like talking about Green Book on stage, I think would be quite complicated. It would be interesting to hear how he would accept an award in the face of some of the criticism of the movie. Um, he's obviously been very thoughtful about that and is talking about it in the last couple of months. So we'll see what happens. I, I think that this category is sort of the, the inverse, the sort of polar opposite of supporting actress, which is like, it's five pretty good performances from five people you like, but they just don't feel all that powerful. Whereas the five performances in Best Actress in a Supporting mm-hmm. Role are like elemental to the movie and they're really, really strong and they drive the movie. And you're, you're making like the, yes, of course. I have these I, I, <laughs> face at me right now. Okay. I'm sorry. Yes. I mean, that's, that's how uh, men's and women's roles work in Hollywood. Yes. Anyway, thank you. Okay. Uh, shall we go to the next category? Yes. Uh, let's switch it up. Speaking of, we'll let the men go first this time. Oh, great. Here is Best Actor in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy. The nominees are Christian Bale for Vice, Lin-Manuel Miranda for Mary Poppins Returns, Vigo Mortensen for Green Book, Robert Redford for The, for the Old Man and the Gun, and John C. Riley for Stan and Ollie. Another weird category. 
Uh, I don't know why Lin-Manuel Miranda is not supporting actor. I don't either. Shouldn't he be supporting actor? I think so, but I suppose they can choose whatever category to run in him. And I assume the thinking was, since the supporting actors are all in one category, you have less of a shot at nomination. But when it's broken out to drama and musical comedy, he has more shot at a nomination. And lo, here he is. Good point. It's interesting that he's not really in the conversation at all for best actor for the Oscars. I haven't I haven't seen his name on any any ballots. Yeah, I would agree, though. I, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I he's, he's very likable. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's weird that they didn't let him write the songs because then he would just win all of the song categories. But Great anyway. Um, I think categorizing Vice as a comedy means that Bale is a lock here. I do, uh, too. You, you agree? Yes. I We are doing a wins pool mm-hmm. later this week, and I don't want to give away my strategy, but I would say that Christian Bale is the closest thing to a lock. He's a number one seed. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, if this doesn't happen, I'll be very, very, very surprised. I agree. On the other hand, I think Best Actress in a Motion Picture, Musical, or Comedy is quite a showdown. Yes. And here are the nominees. Emily Blunt, Mary Poppins Returns, Olivia Coleman, The Favorite, Elsie Fisher, Eighth Grade, Charlize Theron, Tully, Constance Wu, Crazy Rich Asians. Give me your first thoughts on this group of people. Generally or in terms of who will win? Just, just in terms of the race itself. I mean, you want me to tell you my fa- my pick? Yeah, My sure. pick is Olivia Coleman. Okay. I, I did that because it's an international mm-hmm. uh, voting association. You don't seem and- confident. No, I think it's really close. I think it could be Emily Blunt. I think that they're, I mean, the Gold Derby odds, they're very close. I think Emily Blunt is great in Mary Poppins Returns. And if she is going to win anything this year, I think that this would be the award. The Golden Globes likes celebrity. Uh, They like recognizing someone having their moment. Uh, They like silliness a bit more than anyone else. So I could see it. I you know, I could see Constance Wu. I was going to say Elsie Fisher. I, I feel like there's, yeah. you know, this is a this is a random category. Let's just talk through some of the most recent winners in this category because it's always, it's often a little bit left. So in 2017, it was Saoirse Ronan, which was cool, but that kind of makes me think Elsie Fisher has a chance here. Um, Emma Stone in 2016 for La La Land, of course, went on to win for the Oscar that year. Jennifer Lawrence in 2015 for Joy, which Ooh. is amazing. Yeah. Uh, Amy Adams in 2014 for Big Eyes, Amy Adams in 2013 for American Hustle, Jennifer Lawrence in 2012 for Silver Linings Playbook, and Michelle Williams in 2011 for My Week with Marilyn. So what can we learn from that collection of winners? They like famous people. Mm -hmm. They like young women. Mm -hmm. They like white people. Mm -hmm. They like, I guess, ingenues in a sense. In 2010, it was Annette Benning for The Kids Are All Right. So that's the that's the last time a sort of a more seasoned actress mm-hmm. won the award. Uh, I went with Emily Blunt, and I feel okay about it. I don't I don't feel very strongly about it. This is probably the category I'm, I have the least confidence in. You could be totally right. I I was sort of on the fence, and I was trying not to overthink it because I don't really think that the Hollywood Foreign Press Association thinks about this at all. So that I I tried to channel their mindset, but Emily Blunt's really popular. Really, really possible. It wouldn't even be crazy if Charlize Theron won. I think it would be a little. I mean, just she's in the context really, of the Globes. Really, sure, not in, in the context of the Globes. Yes, and she is obviously extremely famous. But I just Tully came out months ago. It, no mm-hmm. one's really talking about it, even though we both quite liked it, or yeah. at least liked her performance. Yes, um, I think that it would just be a little too film experty for the Globes to mm-hmm. be like, well, but let me tell you about Tully. Like, they're not going to do that. Yeah, it feels maybe more like My Week with Marilyn, though, where it's like, let's get a very famous actress on stage for a kind of transformative role. Sort she's of. She's glamorous. But yeah, but, I mean, she's not glamorous in Tully. My Week with Marilyn yeah. is kind of of the old Hollywood, 
nostalgia. It's true. Have you seen My Week with Marilyn? Yes, I have. It's not good. No. No, it's not a good movie. No. Let's go to uh let's go to our old pal in best actress in a motion picture drama. Yeah. Uh Amanda, have you seen The Wife? <laughs> Still have not seen The Wife. Nor have I have not seen The Wife. However, Glenn Close has seen The Wife. In fact, she appeared in it. She's nominated in this category. She is the wife. She is truly the wife. As is Lady Gaga, not a wife until she is one in A Star is Born when she becomes <laughs> Allie Maine. Nicole Kidman for Destroyer, which we discussed last week. Melissa McCarthy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And Rosamund Pike for Private War. Uh, quick note about this. I received an email from a friend over the weekend. You know, I do this uh, 100 favorite movies list every year on my personal site, which I will not plug. Um, but I am plugging the fact that I do it. And... Our, our friend actually emailed me and said, here are my takes about your takes. Oh, wow. these, these are all the Love bad. It. These yeah. are all the bad movies on your list. Um, and one of them was a private war. And the message next to it was, I have not seen this movie, but I refuse to believe it is good. Um, okay. It, is know, this I, person actually my friend? Well, we can talk about that. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so Ross Pike <laughs> is nominated here. And uh, I thought A Private War was pretty good, actually. But she has no chance to win in this category. This is on my list of movies to watch before the Golden Globes, which like it says you everything that you need to know about Rosamund Pike's chances in this movie. I've, I have been meaning to see it. I really, really like Rosamund Pike going all the way back to Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice in mm-hmm. 2005. She's delightful. This is a significantly different kind of performance I, yes, from that Yes, of movie. course. I mean, as is Gone Girl, as, yeah. you know, she is... As is an education. Yes. I mean, she's really, really delightful. She has great and range. This is one of... This is not delightful, her, I'm told, but it, it, yeah. It's not delightful. I mean, it's a really hard movie to watch. It's about yeah. Marie Colvin, the international war correspondent who put herself in harm's way many, many times over mm-hmm. the years, you know, and ultimately tragically died in in, in the line of fire. Um, we can move on from Rosamund Pike. She's a great actress. She'll probably be... She should be back. I... I think the Hollywood mismanagement of Rosamund Pike is in interest of Shea Serrano's and ours. Yes. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where she goes from here. Melissa McCarthy, I, I say no. Nicole Kidman, I say no. I think this comes down to Lady Gaga and our pal, Glenn Close. Mm-hmm. Who'd you go with? I went with Gaga. Yeah, as did I. It's just Globe's catnip. Yeah. It's, you know, being able to give an award to Lady freaking Gaga, who is very famous. They've done it before. I think they'll do it again. It feels obvious, and that's why I feel a little bit uneasy about it. Yeah, I agree. But A Star is Born is such Golden Globes fair, Mm -hmm. and I really think that they're going to reward it in the obvious places and this is a really obvious one i you know and it, i don't think it's too obvious they're not it's this is not rocket science it's an award show yeah this is a real tone setter category for the oscars as well um last year francis mcdormand won however in 2016 isabelle Huppert won for l um if anybody listening has not seen l i would highly encourage it with a, with a with a warning sign next to it it's a tough complicated movie brie larson won in this category julianne moore kate blanchett Jessica Chastain won in 2012, Meryl Streep for The Iron Lady, Natalie Portman for Black Swan. So that's a lot of Oscar winners there. Yeah. Um, Though, I mean, that's what's interesting about the rest of the categories that we're going to discuss is that, you know, Olivia Coleman, who is the other real Oscar contender, is in a separate category. Mm-hmm. So we can't, I mean, you can use this as a sort of bellwether, but no one's really going head to head until the SAG Awards, which are imperfect, and then the Oscars. I kind of think also that that just changes the way that people will vote a little. It's, How so? Well, maybe not the way that people will vote, but the outcomes. I think it's more likely that Lady Gaga wins this than the Oscar because, I mean, obviously she's not up with, she's not up against Olivia Coleman, but then once it's Glenn Close, Olivia Coleman, and Gaga in the mix, I think you're splitting votes a bit more. I don't know. 
it's probably the most, it's one of the most interesting races. Yeah. Um, we'll talk more about it in the future. I think it's Gaga too. I think they want to have a Gaga acceptance moment on stage, especially if she's not singing during this, this uh, award yeah. show. So we both say Gaga. Let's go to Best Actor in a Motion Picture Drama. The nominees are Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, Willem Dafoe at Eternity's Gate. Have you seen that movie? It's also on my list. Okay. Thanks so much for the gloves. Somehow you I knew yeah. you hadn't watched it. I could just I, sense it. And yeah. I had a feeling. Lucas Hedges' Boy Erased, Rami Malek, Bohemian Rhapsody, and John David Washington for Black Klansman. So, I picked Rami Malek. So did I. Um, I don't think that Rami Malek has any chance to win the Oscar, but maybe I'm wrong about that. This is very fascinating to me because this naturally should be a place to reward Bradley Cooper for all of the fine work he does in and for A Star is Born. But the Bohemian Rhapsody train trucks on and it's very flashy. Queen Freddie Mercury is an international figure. Rami Malek is an international figure. And I don't, I just, it just seems, this seems weirdly obvious. I agree with you. I also picked him. I think some of it is this is the only place that he will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think he'll win an Oscar. Maybe I'm wrong. I Could that change though? Could, could that change? If Vice isn't as big a thing as we expect, if Cooper gets Best Director or Best Picture, do they decide to give it to Ram? Is this possible? Because it is, you know, it is a very similar classical transformation. And he's good. He's good in it. You know, you can't say he's not good. Uh, you don't I, think he's good? I think he's fine. I think it's a, I, I mean, it's a lot, which is obviously the point. Yeah. That's your channeling a lotness. But there, it, there's something about the physical transformation that is a bit over the top. And, you know, I have a really hard time with these impersonation roles mm -hmm. in general because it just crosses over to SNL so quickly for me. It's very, you know, there are even moments of Amy Adams's performance where she's just doing Kate McKinnon as... Lynn Cheney, and it's very funny. And the fact that Adam McKay wrote and directed that movie means that you know you're the film is already towing that line. Yeah, but in the general, Rhapsody is not shouldn't be going for that. Although no. you know, Mike Myers is in that movie. There's a kind of jokey quality to that movie at times. That's kind of one of its flaws. Yeah. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. I think people honestly, SNL is very popular, and people respond to that kind of thing. Sure. I just kind of think that. In terms of actor and acting, I, I'm always like, I don't know whether this is acting or impersonation. So I personally think there's a case to be made that it's not as good as, say, Bradley Cooper, which is an actual transformation. And then you're like, holy crap, that's Bradley Cooper. That is not what I think of to be Bradley Cooper. And he kind of created that character from a lot of different living people. I was going to say, but I was like, yeah. holy crap, there's Eddie Vedder yeah, when I watched well, it. But, you I know. mean, it's a composite, sort sure. of. But anyway, to the Oscar point, I... <sighs> This, to me, seems like a Golden Globes wanting to have some fun liking this actor, knowing it's not going to happen anywhere else. Mm -hmm. the, this, this is where I'm like the weirdness and the capriciousness of the Golden Globes voting body is going to be on display. And I think that the Academy will vote differently. Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think we agree. Uh, shall we do best screenplay? Yeah. Okay. Interesting category. Yes. So unlike the Oscars, which is normally split into two mm -hmm. different screenplay categories, one for adapted and one for original, this is just five smashed together. Here are the five. Alfonso Cuaron for Roma, Deborah Davis, and Tony McNamara for The Favorite. I don't know very much about them. I'd like to read a little bit more about them. Uh, Barry Jenkins for If Beale Street Could Talk, Adam McKay for Vice, Peter Farrelly, Nick Vallelonga, and Brian Corey for Green Book. Now, who did you choose here? And then let's talk about the category. I chose the favorite. 
Okay. I chose Vice. I think it's right between those two. Those to me, you got you got it as well. I, You're showing the in your favorite, list. but I could also see Vice. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we were in an interesting unknown area with Vice here. Yeah. Vice came out a week ago. It did pretty good business. Obviously, it's the most nominated film at the Globes. There's a lot of starry famous people. Adam McKay is on a on a run right now with succession. So there's a lot going for it. But if it goes like 0 for 6 or 1 for 6 with Bale only, that will probably portend something less positive for that movie going into the Oscars. The favorite is definitely one of the most celebrated screenplays of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see it winning. I my, could see it winning in this category of the Oscars too. Yeah, my reasoning was just screenplay is usually a is often a bone they throw at something that doesn't win anything else. And I think I did pick Olivia Coleman, but I, I think this is it on my ballot for the favorite. So I went with the favorite. You have me changing my mind a little bit. Well, I also put vice in parentheses. So I could, you know. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I think Roma is also in play here because the, yeah. you know, Roma obviously is not up for best picture. Um, and I wouldn't rule out Barry Jenkins, honestly. Uh, I would rule out Peter Farrelly and Nick Vallelonga and Brian Corey, though maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, I was just going to say there is a real disaster scenario where they win for this award. And then... How many think pieces will you assign that night? <sighs> I mean, I will assign one to you. Yeah. Congratulations yeah, to you on your think piece. I don't Thank know. You. you know, it's then, then we, it's just a whole mess and we got to go through the whole thing. And let's just not, I, I think it would be great if the Golden Globes could not make us go through that. It will re-shine a spotlight on that whole, yeah. that whole situation. Um, okay. Let's go to the next category. It's best director, motion yeah. picture. Bradley Cooper, A Star is Born, Alfonso Cuaron, Roma. Peter Farrelly, Green Book, Spike Lee, Black Klansman, Adam McKay, Vice. I went with Cooper, and I think this is wrong, but I'm going with Cooper. That's kind of how I feel about it. Okay. Did you go with Quaron? I went with Quaron. I had Quaron or Cooper written for a long time, and like last night at 11, I made a decisive delete stroke, and I did Quaron. Yeah. It's... uh, This is a stupid award show. I I mean, I I could be wrong, but... And I really think that it's just kind of rule book makeup you know the fact that he can't win best picture means that they'll give it to director they he has already won but they don't mind repeats and the globes isn't an international voting body they do have a taste that you know might not play out in the general public so Mm -hmm. i went with corone basically just because he can't win the biggest award of the night how many people in the world do you think have seen roma at this moment just put a number on it oh (laughs) (laughs) um it's like way too early for numbers, man. Um, scene or are we doing Netflix count? Or are we doing real count? No, real count. How many How many people in the world have completed the film Roma? I want to say somewhere between five and seven million. Okay, that, that'd be a lot. I think that'd it, be great. That would be a lot. But I mean, the whole world, Sean. Yes. How many people are in the world? Like billions. How, where are we at? Eight billion? Yeah, I think so. Bobby, Close. can you get a check on that? Okay. Like a, a lot. So it, it, percentage-wise, it's small, but... You know, I think once you count all the countries that Netflix is available in mm-hmm. and the number of people who are curious, you know, I'd like to think that there are five to seven million film enthusiasts in the world. You know, I asked because earlier this week, Netflix, of course, shared the information that 45 million people watched Bird Box within the streamed th- Bird Box. Streamed Bird That's Box. That's why I asked you. Okay, streamed okay. Bird Box within the first seven days of release, Yeah, uh, which is a fascinating statistic right. that I would like to devote a several-hour podcast to. Yeah. I don't know what it means. I'd like to understand a little bit more about what it means. I don't even know if that signifies success. Perhaps it does. Um, perhaps pure consumption is success at this point. 
and nevertheless, um, it's more people have seen Roma than otherwise would have if this were just distributed in art houses. So that's that's cool. I'm happy about that. Should we go to the last two categories? Yes. Best motion picture, musical, or comedy. Here are the nominees. Crazy Rich Asians, The Favorite, Green Book, Mary Poppins Returns, and Vice. Who would you choose? I went with Vice. As did I. Though hearing you read the nominees, this is just a wild card category. Sure Pretty is. funny. Yep. I went with Vice because... It was the most nominated film of the entire Golden Globes, which I just think means that it's on the brain. And the Golden Globes has a history of this movie explains America films. And I think that Vice is definitely trying to explain America and in a way that certain voters might uh, feel good about themselves by voting for it. And I think this is the way they'll go, but I could be totally wrong. Uh, I, I basically agree with you. Um, I think that three of these four, three, f- four, four of these five are in play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Crazy Rich Asians is the only film that probably doesn't have a chance here. I don't know. I think it could. I think you could make a strong case that Vice and Crazy Rich Asians should not even be in this category and should be in drama and Bohemian Rhapsody and A Star is Born should be in musical or comedy, which is one of the things that is just kind of fucked up about this whole thing. You know, Crazy Rich Asians is theoretically a rom-com, though I don't think it's a very funny movie. I think it's actually more effective when it's sort of like lightly dramatic, melodramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, gosh. I guess Vice. Okay, next. Let's go to the next category. Yeah. Best motion picture drama. Here are the nominees. Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, If Beale Street Could Talk, and a star is born. So I assume you're going Black Panther. <laughs> I really liked Black Panther. I Don't do be rude. Okay. Uh, uh, no, I'm going a star is born. Yeah, me too. Uh, do you think that this is like locked up at the Oscars right now? No. You don't? No. Because... Because Rome is not here, obviously. Yes. And that is the the biggest challenger. Right. But I got it. Just There's an air of inevitability around this for me right now with a star is born. I can see it. And I think... And we did say that about La La Land. So... That's true. And maybe next week I'll feel differently if Gaga wins, if Cooper wins in Best Actor, if if A Star is Born does in fact win. It is kind of the consensus favorite. And we'll talk a lot more about the breakdown of the Academy voting body and how that all plays out. But you're right. I can see it still seems like the favorite to me, and I certainly think it'll win in this category. But when you put all these movies together and suddenly you've got A Star is Born— Green Book, The Favorite, Vice, Black Panther, all in one category, it changes the way that people are thinking about all of them. And Roma, of course. I didn't even, Roma, I was reading from a list. So I really want to do a whole thing on the, pref, a whole podcast on the preferential ballot because I, I, think, I think that we will. that really changes. It's not just, I mean, if everyone votes number one, A Star is Born, then yes, it wins. Is that going to happen? I don't know. That's how a movie like The Favorite wins. Yeah. You know, we've seen stuff like that happen before. I tend to think that's what happened with the King speech, but we can talk about that another yeah. time. Uh, that Those are our ballots. We'll share those on social media. If you don't already know, we have a Twitter feed for the show. It's at the big pick. So feel free to share yours with us. I can't promise you I will look at yours, but someone will. And <laughs> isn't that great that social media shares content? Um, shall we continue with the show? Yes. Okay. Let's just talk very quickly about the rest of this show. Okay. Um, I don't care about the TV stuff. Uh, we will cover the TV stuff. Our, our pals at The Watch, I'm sure, will cover it. Allison Herman is keeping a close eye on it and covering it for the site. It usually doesn't matter. I'm more interested in the Emmys, and I'm not even that interested in the Emmys. I do want to talk about Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh. Uh, what do you expect from these two people who I would not have guessed are hosting an award show together but are? 
Well, that's the great part right there is that I don't really have a ton of expectations except, oh, I like them. And that'll be nice. And they will do amusing filler bits while we wait for the reveals of all the categories we just discussed, which is basically what you need from a host at this point. Yep. And, you know, I like them. I'm curious because I don't like I, I don't have a fixed idea in my head of what it's like when Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh are bantering on stage. And, you know, frankly, I like it when famous people banter on stage. That's why I'm here doing this podcast. In That's a way. right. So should we be doing this on stage? <laughs> no. Okay. Maybe sometime in the future. That's why I care about awards shows. Got it. Yeah. I don't know why anyone listens to us. But anyway, I think the fact that we don't have a fixed idea of what they'll be like or a huge amount of expectations burden on them is great. I think that it'll just be pleasant. And then, like, we'll know the winners and we'll move on. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping that at least Sandberg affects his Justin Bieber roast persona. That's my favorite Andy Samberg okay. live performance, barring, I guess, any Lonely Island comedy. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. This feels a lot closer to Independent Spirit Awards style host to me than the Globes in the past. You know, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, while you know, I guess similarly, you know, SNL alums, television stars in many ways, were just more famous. Ricky Gervais sort of standalone was more internationally famous you know, Andy Samberg's the star of a network sitcom. He's he's an awesome, hilarious comic actor and very creative. But And Sandra Oh is a star of a fairly small drama on BBC America. Now, she was on Grey's Anatomy for many years. Right. And is, you know, a star of movies like Sideways. She's had a great career. But this it's actually fairly low wattage. And that's interesting to me. One thing I've been thinking a lot about, um, on The Watch a couple months ago, Andy Greenwald was talking about sitcom streaming and the shows that are kind of streamed and restreamed the most. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine is really up there. Yeah. It's, it's kind of right behind Friends. So I, I think Andy Samberg is actually a bit more famous than we understand it. To, we understand him to be. And I also kind of think he is the right level and the right type of famous, which is, oh, that guy, I like that guy. I'll just sit and watch him talk for a while. It doesn't, there's a familiarity that comes with TV and especially sitcom rewatching TV that lends itself well to this style of hosting, which is I don't know that you want to put on a big show anymore as a celebrity and a host. I think that it, there aren't that many people that can do it that well and speak to a large enough audience. So you kind of sneak your way in with familiarity. Yeah. yeah, you're like a you're like a tour guide with good banter. Yeah. Um speak speak when you should speak and and let us look at the pyramids when we want to look at the pyramids. Exactly. Um you know, the Oscars doesn't have a host yet. And I've been thinking about writing about this for like a couple of weeks now, and I still just don't know what to say for two reasons. One, I feel like the, when inevitably whenever I publish a column about it, they will name somebody that moment. It'll be the perfect person. Sure. But secondarily, I, do, I don't really know what the show needs. You know, I don't really know what it wants. My, my, my take in general, and I mentioned this to you, I think, last week on the show, is that I think it's a great job. I think we've now accepted that like it's a bad job because mm -hmm. you could get Kevin Harted or anything you've done in the past can be spotlit or the, the opportunity to fail is greater than the opportunity to succeed. And so it feels like a lose-lose. I've heard Bill talk about this recently. Of course, he he knows firsthand from talking to Jimmy Kimmel about his experiences. And people thought Jimmy Kimmel did really well. And still, he was. there's kind of this feeling like, well, why would you go back again? What's really the upside? You know, my counter to that is very straightforward, which is just like, if you want to be more famous, just host the Oscars. Like, this makes you more famous. This gives you more access to more people in the world than almost anything else you can do unless you you have like 90 million Twitter followers because 30 million people watch this show, right? right? I mean, that's true. But the problem is, is that 
basically until this year, the caliber of person that they would even consider for an awards host was already beyond that fame point. So if you're really famous. Yes and no. Well. I mean, is Seth MacFarlane really that famous? I don't. I mean, that guy's on the Orville and they're advertising (laughs) it every damn football game. He's just like in my house all the time now. I can't believe it's real. But I think the people on Fox are watching this all the time. Yes, I think he's quite famous. Where are my Orville heads at? Not here. Okay. Uh, I, I'm I'm so fascinated by the fact that they don't have a host. When it was December 3rd, that was the latest they had gone before they named Jimmy Kimmel the host for a second time. Right. Um, and people were like, whoa, this is really fucking late. And it is now January 2nd. Yeah. So we're six weeks out. Yeah. No host. Do you think they'll do the, uh, you know, I was looking, I've been reading a bit about um The Godfather. Are you familiar with The Godfather? Heard of it. Okay. So we're doing The Godfather on the rewatchables, uh, which is coming to you shortly. And I was reading a bit about the 45th Academy Awards, which is the Godfather Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. And that show did not have a host per se. Mm -hmm. It had four sort of guide hosts, among them Michael Caine and I believe Charlton Heston. And so they had, I think, three actors and an actress come out and kind of shepherd the show. Mm -hmm. And that is something specifically that Bill has been suggesting. Saying, you know, they should just bring out Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, Meryl Streep, and I I don't know, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and just have them shepherd the show. Um. I feel like that's not splashy enough for the 2019 social media moment. Well, counterpoint, then you can just list 30 people on one little Instagram card. Yeah. And then you have all of the famous people all at once. And in that sense, you do get your something for everyone. I agree with I agree with Bill. I also do think that just from a practical standpoint, this is what they'll end up doing. But, you know, every year after about two hours into an awards show and especially the Oscars were like, the presenters are better than the host. Why don't they just let these people banter? So maybe they'll just let these people banter. And in a way, honestly, Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh is an extension of that. It's like, you know, they would be the presenter category that everyone was like, oh, that's so charming. Just like Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph last year. There's always one presenter combo where you're like, why don't you let them host? And then I think maybe this year they'll just have like four or five presenter combos and let them host. It'll Isn't be fine. it really weird though that Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen are not the hosts of this show? It's too, too meta. They, were they in the Emmys? They did the weird commentary where they were just like eating salad in the booth. Yeah. And you can't do that. Why? Maya Rudolph, she can sing, she can dance. I think I would love hilarious. for Maya Rudolph alone to be the host of the Oscars. Sure, I would why not? watch that. I how dare I yeah. saddle her with some weak-kneed exactly. co-host? Right, who just makes her sit in a booth and like make salad jokes. No, I didn't even like that. I okay. like I like her very much, and I was like, this is boring. I, okay. This is a waste of my time. Keep it moving. So just let people be charming on stage. It's not that hard. Just find some charming people, put them in a tuxedo and or evening wear of their choosing and just let them talk for two minutes and then move it along. One thing that's been interesting about doing this show with you is yeah. you are using it as a campaigning device to get new jobs. So you <laughs> wanted to have the job of reading all the tweets and that's now you want to be the pre- still haven't hired anyone. You want to, My you, rate we don't know up. that. My rate went we up, don't. by the way. Okay, it's a million in 2019. <laughs> but now you want to host, you, you, you don't want to host, but you want to be the producer of the Oscars. Is that right? I just have some suggestions. Okay, okay. So just making some suggestions is literally the job of the producer of <laughs> yeah, the Oscars. Okay, well, that's great. Let's go to Stock Up, Stock Down. We're going to make this very quick. We're going to try to move through this, the rest of the show pretty quickly. Um, Vice. Vice made a little bit of money. And it's gotten some better reviews since that 
that outpouring of complicated, somewhat negative reviews that first came around two weeks ago when the embargo lifted. You know, we mentioned this a little bit already as we talked through some of the categories, but I do think the globes really matter here. Mm -hmm. And is there a world in which it goes like six for six? I would be surprised, Mm -hmm. but not shocked. I don't think it'll go six for six. I, like, McKay's not winning Best Director, with Good all point. respect to Adam McKay, who's Good, great. Right. Good And point. whose work I enjoy. So I think that it could win Best Picture, Comedy, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actress. And then that's a real— And maybe Rockwell. And maybe Rockwell. It could win four. I would like to share two key dates with you. Please. Monday, January 7th, which happens to be the day after the Golden Globes, is when the nominations voting opens for the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And Monday, January 14th is when it closes. So— I the Golden Globes are the live and die situation for the for Vice, which is a hilarious sentence. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting too. And I mean, Vice, of course, is Annapurna. Yeah. Annapurna is still a fairly young company when it comes to the campaign season. And it'll be interesting to see how they move the chess pieces around the board in the coming weeks. the The other one that I'm interested in, so it sounds like Vice is just kind of holding steady. We well, don't, we yeah, don't, we'll see. Next we, week. We'll see on Sunday night. Um, the favorite, which again, made more money this weekend Mm -hmm. and is not necessarily going up in theater count, but is very slowly but surely doing well and Mm -hmm. doing well and doing well. I'm so impressed by this sort of thing. I'm probably too impressed by it, honestly, but the way that Fox Searchlight every year makes a really weird movie and then gets like $30 million worth of people to go see it. um, I, I think I've said it a couple of times already. I still feel like when you let Fox Searchlight go into the final six weeks of an Oscar race, they know how to like turn the jets on. And I could see it happening here. What do you think? I don't think so. I no? think this is such this is such a classic, oh, we really liked it and all the actors will be nominated movie. Mm-hmm. And then it will be nominated for Best Picture as a result because it's great. It is one of the best movies of the year, but it's just a classic Best Actress win and everybody else gets nominated for me. Fox Searchlight had 20 Oscar nominations last year. I I think that they made this year. Like, I, I think it will be nominated pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. I really, I picked Olivia Coleman at the Golden Globes, and I think she'll probably still win Best Actress mm-hmm. at the Oscars. And it could win screenplay. It could win many things. I just, and as you said, things go a little weird in the Best Picture voting, and maybe it does fall to the favorite because it's everyone's, like, third choice. I have one observation. You know how famously HBO dominated the Emmys for many years? Yes. And they would tout their nominations because mm-hmm. HBO was a branch. So they would say, we had 139 Emmy nominations this year. Movie studios historically do not do that because mm-hmm. no one knows what Fox Searchlight is. Mm-hmm. Traditional consumers can't really tell the difference between Columbia and Screen Gems and Sony right. Pictures Classics, even though they're all owned by the same company. What they do is they say, this movie got 13 nominations or nine or six. I think Netflix is going to be the first company that's like, we got the most Oscar nominations of any company. So they're going to say Netflix has, I don't know, 19 nominations. I'm very curious to see if they use that strategy because Netflix is the only real brand. Disney, of course, is a brand, but Disney historically does not care about the Oscars. So I'll be very curious to see if on our drive to work every day when we pass by the Netflix offices and we see those big banners and billboards, if they'll be touting not just Roma and not just a documentary that they're proud of, but the company in toto, you know? I'm sure they will. I totally, but that just seems like a foregone conclusion. Like that seems, it would be a kind of an innovation though. You know, know. we're in a world where Bird Box has 45 million, you know. Are we? Are we in a a world? In a world where Netflix is claiming that, but they'll claim anything. And that's kind of the, the buzz and the attention is how they make their money. So of course they will. And that that just seems natural to me because why else are they trying to win Oscars? Let's go to the big race. Yeah. 
I want to talk about best animated feature, okay. which is very fun for me because you haven't seen these movies and don't care about I them. I have seen two of these movies. You don't respect me. You don't respect this art form. That's true. Um, Respecting you anyway. Uh, I think you agree that this is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse versus Incredibles 2, right? I think so, yeah. Um, only three times since 2007 has the result differed from the Oscars results in the category. I'm talking about the Globes here. So in 07, Cars won at the Globes and Happy Feet won at the Oscars. Shout out to George Miller. In 2011, The Adventures of Tintin won at the Golden Globes, famously directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm -hmm. um, and Rango won at the Oscars. Tintin was not even nominated at the Oscars, which is kind of amazing. Shout out to Rango. I fucking love Rango. And then in 2014, How to Train Your Dragon 2 won at the Golden Globes and Frozen won at the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Amanda, I think that there's an interesting Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse thing that could happen here, mm -hmm. which is that this might change the dynamic of the Pixar dominance of all this stuff. Incredibles 2 is one of the biggest movies of the year. It's, it's gotten very well reviewed. Brad Bird is very well liked in the Academy. That said, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is like literally one of the five best reviewed films of the year. You refuse to see it because you're a coward, but, <laughs> and you won't, you don't accept great art. But I, I, I'm curious, one, if you think that sort of like shattering the Disney stronghold here is meaningful in any way, and also, especially in a year where they have Mary Poppins Returns competing in a category where they don't right. usually have other movies, and Black Panther, frankly, with Marvel. Um, and also, why won't you watch these movies? I do think that the ending the Disney stronghold would be significant because I typically see one to two animated movies a year, and it's whatever Disney Pixar movie has been nominated that everyone's talking about, and they're like, oh, it you know, moves me so much, and like, what a, a triumph. And <laughs> this is really disturbing. Sean, just like, I'm sorry that the only time that you can feel is when like cartoons are running around. But anyway, imagine seeing Coco and having a black heart. You know what? I was imagine moved. that listener. I, I know Inside Out. I was weeping. I was just like, okay. actually, I watched it. it. It was like a random December night, and I turned to my adult husband and I was like, should we watch this movie? Mm -hmm. We have no children. So we just two adults sitting on a couch watching Inside Out. What and did your child husband think? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just, I, I get it. Inside Out was like really tremendous. I, I understand the appeal. I, I think I've seen all the Pixar movies. I like, I get it for me. For it's, me, it's a no dog. That's what you're saying. You're Randy <laughs> well, Jackson. No, 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 I mean, it is, it's going to be a no for me dog, but I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to quiz me. And it's basically just like a different medium, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, we have talked so much about TV or movies and movies or TV now, but they're not. Like, TV is a different type of art form from movies. And yes. I really do feel that animated movies are slightly different from movies. They prioritize different skills and different ideas and different ways of making art. And that's great. And all the people who make them are very skilled at what they do. And I'm not saying that they can't be moving, but... I, they're not as interesting to me. They don't speak to me in the way that films featuring human beings do. It's um, like you have a closed ventricle in your heart, you know? There's just a certain area where the blood can't get in. I guess so. Okay. Well, that was a really bad take, but I'm glad you shared it. Shall we look ahead? Yeah, let's do it. So we're going to be coming to you after the Golden Globes. Perhaps night of, perhaps not. Um, and we'll have a lot of opinions, I guess. We'll talk a little bit about the opening of the Oscars voting. I do want to cede a note to our really loyal listeners who have been sharing how much they've been enjoying the film The Wife. We are going to watch The Wife, maybe, at some point in the future. Yes. I don't know when. Maybe it'll be 2025. Maybe it'll be 2045. It'll probably be in the next four weeks. 
Probably. Unless some very wild things happen at Oscar nominations. Oh, yes. That's a great point. If Glenn Close is shut out, then I will never watch The Wife. I was going to say maybe that's when I'll finally watch it in (laughs) trivia. It's like to shine a light on unheralded performances. Oh, that's a good take. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Um, So we'll keep you posted on when The the Wife pod is coming because it is coming. Um, Amanda, any closing thoughts here ahead of the Golden Globes? I would just say... We talk a lot every year about how the Golden Globes don't matter, and they are nonsensical, and we don't always agree with them, but I I think this year they are going to have some influence, or they will at least be a talking point in a way that sometimes they aren't. So if you weren't considering watching, but you care about awards shows, maybe watch or definitely listen to our podcast. I would definitely suggest you do the latter. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, thanks again. Thank you, Sean. Please stay tuned for my conversation now with Cold War writer-director Pavel Pavlikowski. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Sonos. The Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and newest addition to the easy-to-use Sonos home sound system. Amanda, Sonos supports over 100 streaming services and airplay, so you can play everything you love and enjoy music, radio, movies, TV, podcasts, and more. Amanda, do you have a Sonos? I do. Tell me a little bit about your personal experience with Sonos. We've had it for several years, and I really enjoy it, primarily to torment my husband with Christmas music during the holiday Mm -hmm. season, but now we've segued from that into Elton John season. I'm going to see Elton John at the end of the month, and I'm preparing. It's great. Every room, and sometimes from rooms that I'm not in, Elton John, just just everywhere. Just floating around. At the touch of a button. I got to say, I, I, I too have a Sonos Beam, and I watched The Godfather with a Sonos Beam, and that Nino Rota score, you know, famously not nominated for an Oscar, I'll note, uh, just sounded so beautiful, so incredible. The sound design in The Godfather is amazing. It sounds even more amazing on the Sonos Beam, which is really easy to set up. It connects to your TV with just one cord and syncs with your existing remote. I highly recommend you check out Sonos Beam. So just go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Beam today. That's S-O-N-O-S dot com Sonos. I'm delighted to be joined by Pavel Pavlikowski. Pavel, thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure. Pavel, Cold War is your second consecutive film set in Poland in a sort of mid-20th century. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, you're obviously of Polish descent, but I'm curious why this is the second time you've done that, because not all of your films are set in that space or in that time. I think it's something to do with the, with the place in life, you know, where I'm in life now, the age. I've, I closed a certain chapter of my life, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago when my kids left home and, uh, you know, I mean, suddenly I became widower. And I really started sort of, you know, reflecting on where I'm from, who I am, you know, what the important things are. Also slightly losing touch with the, with the present or rather not enjoying it so much. So, so in my films, it's, it's maybe less of a return to Poland. It's a return to a certain period in Poland, a period which, which, which I partly remember, partly I know through my parents who I was very close to. And it's a period that formed me, you know, it's, 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 it's where I come from, you know, so it's, uh, so, and it's always been with me, you know, like I kind of, like, I, I lived in England and I made films there, but on the other hand, when I made documentaries, I always made them in Central Eastern Europe, you know, so with fiction, it was difficult. Um, so a moment came where I thought, God, you know, I've got these stories to tell and I've got this world that is within me that I remember that I... Mm, that I still dream about, you know, these images, songs, 
the faces, my parents' faces. My parents died in, in 89 together, a bit like the heroes in the film, uh, just before the wall came down. So, but they left a huge gap, and then that gap became bigger and bigger with, with, with time. So, What do you mean by a gap? Uh, well, they kind of disappeared suddenly from my life. You know, I was the only child. And when you, when they were there, I, you know, it's like it's all with all families, you know, there were, there, were, there were conflicts, you know, I was irritated. They had this very tempestuous kind of very uh, dis, uh, disrupted life and they weren't exactly the best parents. And so, uh, but then when they disappeared, I realized that they are, you know, everything I am is, 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 is sort of from them. And I'm a, and I carry both, uh, uh, you know, some traits of my mother, some traits of my father, and they, their sense of humor, their, um, their horizons were, were what informed me, you know. So I think it's also to do with aging, you know, that suddenly you kind of, you feel more and more, um, so alienated from the present, you know, especially with this digital civilization, which is, you know, inevitable and it's great, but it's, uh, <laughs> but it's nothing to do with me. So there were many, many reasons why I went back to Poland and I went back in time. I'm very interested in the idea of making a film that is sort of of memory, that is a reflection of a time that you can't quite grasp. You know, what is that like to try to evoke something that is gone? And especially if this film is sort of loosely based on on your parents, you know, you don't have them to speak to. So you're building something many years later after they've passed about them. But it's been with me, you know, I mean, it's not like I have to dig very hard, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, certain mental habits, sense of humor, tone of voice, images, you know, when you're young, you, you absorb everything intravenously, you know, images, music, and all that lived within me. It's, of course, living in England in this totally different culture, Anglo-Saxon culture, I kind of closed it in a drawer, <laughs> but it's, but it's never gone away. And it's, uh, uh, and uh, and I always felt I'm from there, you know. It's, it's never you said I was Pol of Polish descent. I'm actually Polish. I always felt Polish. So yes, so it's it's always been there. And 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 going back to Poland to shoot Ida, looking for locations, looking for uh, uh, various landscapes around Poland, listening to music of you know that I remembered. It was so strong. It was just so vivid. It's the best material to make films from, you know, something that's deeply in you and you kind of rediscover it and and you rediscover something that you've always had. Ida, you know, was such a beautiful and masterful film. And there, th this film obviously has a lot in common with it. I'm curious if there was a, an alternate history where you were going to do something that was completely different, say not black and white, not set during this period. Did you, Or were you always going down this track of doing stories that had this interconnection? Uh, yes, very much so. And, uh, you know, I, I have a... Some stories that basically I needed to tell. <laughs> so uh, I never dared to tell this story, although it's been with me for a while, and I've attempted to write it up, you know, over the last ten years, several times. But after Ida, after its success, uh, after the success of a film which is told very minimally, elliptically, poetically, and yet it 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 seemed to resonate everywhere around the world, you know, from China to Spain to, to the States. I realized that I can, you know, it's, it's actually, it's not impossible to tell this story as well. Why, why do you think Ida resonated that way? I'm curious. Because, you know, you'd been making documentaries for 25 years. You'd been making narrative films for 15 years before that. What was it about that film? I don't know. There's some, but it's hard to say for me. Yeah. But, 
But I think it was, it tells a very essential, timeless story, although it's set in history, and maybe tells it in a, in a way which, it's kind of in a film form which people miss, you know, which people um, have a hunger for. And it's also kind of handmade, you know, I kind of like the idea of handmaking films, you know, so it's not, it's not an industrial process. You, you really are kind of sculpting it. I'm just, you know, speculating why it was so popular, but, but it, um, mind you, let's not exaggerate. I mean, it wasn't a blockbuster, but, but it did. No, but many people saw it and, you know, you won an Oscar for it. Uh, yeah. So, so I think it, it's that, you know, if you touch on something universal while sh putting it in kind of authentic, real environment, um, without compromises and, uh, and tell it honestly. And I think uh, it's, there's always an audience for that. I will say, I didn't know anything about the film before I saw it, before I saw Cold War. And, you know, it's this incredibly intense and kind of ravishing movie at times. And then when I saw the dedication at the end of the film to your parents, I was kind of surprised. And maybe that's just a sort of American puritanical point of view. But I was like, this is quite a interestingly romantic and almost sexualized vision of your parents in some respects. You know, what was it mm -hmm. like to kind of tangle with that idea of them as these young and beautiful and passionate people? Yeah, I mean, they they died long ago, so I, I wasn't particularly <laughs> inhibited by, by, I don't think I would have made it if they were around, but uh, <laughs> but they were very, I just realized, you know, uh, for, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, your parents are an embarrassment, you know, they, but they were actually incredibly attractive, strong characters, uh, very different from each other, but both protagonists of their own story. People adored them, you know, that's something that when they died, you know, I realized what an outpouring of grief there was you know how 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 loved they were um were they national figures were they well known no, okay no, not at all but they were well known within the world that the worlds that they traversed mm -hmm. so, and they were just very very strong and and their story which was you know when you look at it you know when you live with them you don't think of it as a story but when you step back and you know after they've disappeared it's an amazing story you know it's amazing disastrous love story that uh, had many chapters and and should have collapsed many times because they, they separated, divorced, uh, they married other people in between. Uh, and yet they kept coming back and, you know, and, and the, the world changed, the countries changed, you know, because they moved on. But they couldn't give up on each other in the end. And, and at the end of it, they were the only thing they had, you know, each other. And the only person they knew through and through uh, was was he and her? Um, so uh, and and when I you know when I visited them shortly before they died in it was in Munich in 1989 they were the most touching uh, loving couple both very ill and both uh, wanting to die uh, but but very at peace with the world with themselves and holding hands you know and having seen them fight physically sometimes and and being awful to each other, cruel, betraying each other, seeing that was, you know, was, was something. You know, think, God, this is, mm. this is incredible, you know, that, and you traverse cultures, periods, you know, they were together on and off for 40 years. And, and there were so many stages to this story, you know, when they met, she was 17, he was 27, he was kind of authority figure for a while. Then he lost that authority <laughs> inevitably. Uh, then when they kind of remarried in the West, they were very different. You know, they, you know, when you live in exile, you have to change your, or you 
don't have to, but you tend to change your personality to kind of find yourself, find your new identity in a new world. The relationship changed and it went through many stages. So, um, so anyway, that was like the big matrix of all love stories for me, you know? And even when I was inventing stories of my own, or when I was once, I was offered to do a film about Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. And I remember being really excited about it because that was a kind of story of two protagonists who really fought to the death. Um, and I, I got involved in, in preparations to make this film, but in the end they realized it's an, um, it was a kind of a studio film which needed stars and, you know, where basically I wouldn't have the control to do it in my way. So, so I stepped back, but I remember the reason I, I was turned on by it was the similarity to that, you know, mother of all love stories. Yeah, that's so fascinating. What's it like? I mean, the stars of this film are wonderful. What was it like trying to find people who evoke something that is also in your memory that is so deep and close to you? But it feels hopeless at the beginning, you know, and, you know, one of the reasons I, I kind of gave, kept giving up on this film was I, I'll never find actors, you know, who are from, of that period, who are have that kind of personality, uh, who I believe in. So, so yeah, and people, people change with, you know, people, nowadays actors are very much of today, most actors, especially male actors. But then, uh, I'd worked with Joanna Kulig before on a couple of films where she had a minor part, but but she had something, uh, it wasn't just <laughs> close to my mother, which she kind of weighs a bit too. My mother was blonde and full of this energy and, and very feisty. But she has something timeless about her, you know? She, I mean, she, she fits in the 50s, 60s now, um, same with uh, Thomas Scott, you know, I was looking for a guy who would feel slightly not of today. Uh, and and Thomas, when you looked at him from a certain angle, lit him in a certain way. Uh, and generally, you know, he has that aura of a, of a pre-war a guy who was born before the war and, you know, and is a kind of leading man from the 50s, you know, mm -hmm. like Gregory Peck or something, you know, one of those... So basically, it I looks just a little bit like you feel, too. It's so people say. I don't think I would have known that if I hadn't uh, seen you face to face. Uh, but it, it occurs to me now. Yeah. No, no. Okay, well, I'm timeless too. Then. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, so anyway, that, that was the criterion uh, largely. Plus, they're good actors, and and Joanna can sing as well, which was a huge plus. Thomas got can't play the piano or couldn't. He, he learned quite a bit, but. Uh, but but then you know the main thing is her singing. Uh, so so you know there are many many good things. But it was a long process to 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 kind of decide. Uh, you know this is it. Uh, he can do it. Then the other actors had to be interesting and timeless and touching in some way. All the extras in a film you know, really hand picked. You know it's very difficult to find extras who look like people in the fifties. You know so it was like a lot of effort went into the kind of into into the into this selecting all the elements you know so to recreate that world yeah so it's a big it's a huge challenge and and you know and while preparing it i kept having these thoughts what the hell are we doing this is never gonna work <laughs> but we just kept plowing on and, and, and we ended up okay in the end what actually pushed this project forward to make it happen? I'm curious, you know, you mentioned like you almost worked on a studio film a number of years ago. You decided not to because you like to have a certain, you have a certain approach. You want to have a certain amount of control over it. What is it like for you to get a film made, especially after something like Ida happens? You know, is it easy to get financing and to convince people that this is something they should do? 
Yeah, I mean, the main problem, uh, to be honest, is myself, to convince myself that I have enough emotional energy and attachment to this thing, that I really want to live with this film for two, three years, because that's what it takes. So that's my main problem. And then, you know, of course, if you want to make a, a film in black and white with unknown actors or actors who are known, not known outside Poland, then money is not straightforward, you know. So, uh, but the Oscar helped a bit. I don't know, maybe 20%, but it didn't open all the doors. You know, it would have been a different story if I'd done it in English and, you know, in a slightly different way. Was that anything you would consider? No, no, no. That's just not the way I make films. So, so it was, it was easier, but kind of, you know, once I'm totally convinced that, the, that I, this is a film that needs to be made and I want it, I know that I can make it, you know, come hello, high water. I know I'll find the money. I've got good producers who are very good at hustling. You know, I mean, these sort of films are made with, from, you know, many sources, you know, small pockets of money from here, regional funds, you know, some, you know, British Film Institute, the Polish Film Institute, bank loans. You know, it's it's real artistry to put a budget together for that kind of film. I always ask about that, even though it seems mundane, but I'm so curious how people manage to put it all together, you know, to make it all work, because it's not easy. No, no, you know, it takes a lot of... A lot of skill and kind of imagination. But, for, for, but I had these two wonderful women producers, Eva Puszczyńska and Tania Segacian in Britain, Eva in Poland, who were just brilliant at, at this kind of thing, at hustling and finding pockets of money here and there. They were shooting in certain regions of Poland, partly because the locations were there, but also because you could get like 100,000 euros, you know, for local regional fund if you shot it there. It's not so different from Hollywood. There are people shooting in Atlanta because there's a lot of tax incentives but, but to, to shoot in Atlanta. Than, probably more than 100,000 euros. Probably, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm interested, you know, you mentioned obviously the film is in black and white and you know, you're working with the same cinematographer as Anita. And I, I'm curious if Ida was kind of epiphanic for you in some way where this is sort of your style now or if it's just appropriate to the story and the time that you're shooting in because photography in this film is just is incredible. And I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, um, I mean, the style is the result of the, the, this, the, the material, you know, so it's not like I decide to make black and white film in static shots for the hell of it. You know, it's, it's more that it just felt Ida was like a meditation, a prayer and not moving camera just made perfect sense. And so the style, yeah, but it's epiphanic in the sense that I'm really you know, when I started working on Ida, I really didn't give a damn, you know, I really didn't care if it's popular, if it's not popular. I just, it wasn't very expensive to make it was like $1.8 million or something. So, so I just kind of did everything exactly the way I wanted, very calmly, put it all together, came up with a slightly eccentric style with eccentric framing. In fact, I had two DPs on it, you know, one dropped out after eight days because he didn't quite get on with it. With with the style, well, with me, but with the, with the style of the film, um, so it's it's basically a certain sense of s security, you know. Like this is this is a story I really want to tell. I know it inside out. I know these people. I know this world. And the photographic approach is part of the love of of that world, you know. I just decided I, I want to photograph it. You know, I don't want the usual kind of cinematic tricks with tracking shots, close-ups and brr, all the grammar. You know, mm -hmm. I just want to make it like a, like a photographic meditation. With Cold War, I moved on because it's a, it's less of a meditation and a prayer. It's more, it's got more uh, blood and guts and it's got more, 
erotic charge and conflict and music and a heroine who's very energetic and fidgety. So, so I had to move the camera. The camera moves that way, yeah. It moves, but it doesn't move for the sake of moving. It's always some, something to do with the, you know, with the essence of the scene or with the character of the scene. Rather. And, and, and the black and white is much more punchy, juicy, more contrasty. So, you know, it's, it's very different. I mean, it's a vastly different, the two, the two films. But I build on the kind of the, the, the certainty of Ida uh, and I move on from that. You know, this film needs some... Cold War needs some other tools, we weapons, you know, so, so we do it, you know, and, uh, but it's all very logical and all very functional. It seems like there is a real deliberation that goes into the approach ahead of something like that, knowing that something is going to be more contrasty or juicy, as you mm -hmm. say. Do you look at a lot of photographs before you start a film like this? Are you watching films to say these are the reference points we want to have when you're talking to your DP? You know, I've watched so many films with my, in my life that they're all somewhere in the back of my head anyway. Uh, so, I mean, Ida was a point of reference in the sense that how do we move on from this, you know? So, and of course, you know, when some critics interview me or, or, or write, they say, oh, we see clearly an influence of Tarkovsky or it's just like Casablanca or it's just like Bresson. <laughs> it's, it's all, you know, it's, it's, it's all true in some ways because I've watched all these films and love them at different stages of my life. And, and it's all somewhere in my backpack, but it's, uh, but there wasn't any kind of particular film that, that, that was a reference, uh, while I was making this one, we did look at a lot of photographs, like period photographs, not necessarily by great photographers, just, just, you know, of locations of the folk ensembles of the period, they suggested some good angles, how to shoot it. Um, the great photographs of jazz clubs in Paris in the 50s and of streets in Paris, you know, all the greats, Duano and Bresson and whatever, CF. Uh, so, but it was a, it, it was just, uh, there wasn't one, you know, it was more like we just need to, to bounce off from stuff. So the, 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 there wasn't no kind of reference point for the film. Tell me about music in your films, uh, particularly, obviously, in Ida, there is this in, incredible moment with the, where that character sort of experiences something almost holy with music. Yeah. And then there are several moments, obviously, in this film, because it is largely oriented around the story of musicians and the way that the creation of music kind of creates some, a spark. Um, t tell me about kind of figuring out what music to use for this film, how, how to shoot it. I'm interested in the, kind of the entire process of that. At some level, I, I use music that I like, you know, and, I, and the tastes are pretty wide from, from you know, Coltrane to Bach to rock and roll and, you know, and folk music. But uh, when Ida, it was straightforward, you know, that, that I used music of, of the time, these kind of rockabilly pop songs that, that I grew up with when I was a small kid, but, you know, which really kind of affected me. And stayed with me, uh, and then Coltrane because you know I wanted to. Um, I mean, jazz was a big deal in Poland at that time, but also I love Coltrane, and 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 there was something religious about 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 his music. Um, That's one of my favorite sequences, like of, of the when decade. She's listening you know, when she's listening to, the, to Coltrane, listening yeah. to Naima, yeah, yeah, it's so, so incredible. Uh, so, so it's a mixture, you know, I love music in, in film, not necessarily composed music, but like, you know, as a dramatic fact, you know, on, on, in the world of the film. So in, in Ida, you know, there was a bit of music on the radio, but also there was this, the band of, of, of the, of the boy who she meets in Cold War. It goes much further because actually, 
introduced the uh, you know the idea of this folk ensemble and the fact that both my heroes are uh, musicians of sorts you know professionals and they meet through music and music keeps them together and music comments on where they are in the relationship and whether they are in geographically and in time so music becomes like this third character in the story and and i had a lot of license to play with it so so um the basic idea was, you know, to take three songs from the repertoire of a folk ensemble called Mazovsha, which is a bit of a prototype for the folk ensemble that's in the film, Mazurek. And I chose three tunes that I remembered and liked. And what's more, they were all three capable of being, on the one hand, re reduced to, to basic folk music, very primitive folk music, which we hear at the beginning of the film. But they also made sense as jazz tunes or a chanson, like a jazzy chanson uh, motifs. So so these three tunes accompany the whole film practically in different guises. And sometimes audience recognizes them, sometimes it works subliminally, but they, they reappear. Um, and then I worked with a, a, a jazz musician, friend of mine, who turned the folk tunes into jazz you know he, he i asked him to do this oberek a wild polish dance from central poland to turn it into a bebop number you know so when we cut to paris uh, for the first time you have uh, victor's quintet playing this polish folk song you know? oh so, i don't think i quite put that together no, That's, I mean, uh, but it kind of works at some level yeah. you know it's, you remember at the beginning there's a woman with the accordion who mm -hmm. i asked her to perform it as well because she never it's not part of what she plays usually then the folk ensemble dances it, you know, at the premiere in uh, Warsaw. And then when we cut to Paris, it's the same. And, and then the, the two, Vasserdushka, the two hearts tune, it becomes like a, like the song of the film. And there's a third tune, which you hear in the, in the studio when the relationship starts cracking up. It's a, it's this kind of sophisticated jazzy chanson. Uh, so, l'un de toi, l'un de toi. It's actually a folk song that you hear at the very beginning of the film. But so it's great to, to play with, with, with music and also to look for great, uh, folk performers. You know, we kind of scoured Poland high and low to find these great voices and faces of these guys that open the film. And then we threw in some other, musics that kind of made dramatic sense you know there is a gershwin's i love you porgy um which uh which is you know helps me the whole seduction scene because it, the seduction happens through music you know victor plays the chords from i love you porgy and zula intuits the melody line which she can't have heard because this was 1949 poland and, and gershwin wasn't uh, wasn't allowed to be played but also it tells you that victor must have lived abroad before the war to to know that tune um, so that that helped and then the rock around the clock um which happens in 1957 uh, it, it's a it's a great kind of wedge between the couple you know zula gets carried away by it because it's kind of appeals to her and she's bored out of her head but it appeals to her kind of animal instincts whereas victor doesn't even notice it's it's being played yeah, and then you've got this kind of cheesy pop song at the end, you know, where she this kind of uh, bio bongo, this kind of tropical number that Zula performs, and that's kind of that, that's really the kind of decline of Zula musically. You know, it's 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 a band that obviously her new husband organized for her, and uh, and it's the cheesy pop music of the early '60s that flooded Poland. 
post-Stalinist Poland. It's such a brilliant convention to sort of use it to mark time that way. You know, obviously I don't know anything about traditional Polish folk songs, but I do know, I do know Gershwin, I do know Rock Around the Clock. I can tell from that style of song from the early 60s that, you know, they're sort of moving through time, even if we're not clearly identifying that the time is happening. Yeah, they're changing countries and and they're moving through time as well. And then then the little, I mean, little pleasures, you know, when they, the folk ensemble goes to perform in Yugoslavia, what was then Yugoslavia, and Kaczmarek, the, 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 the careerist communist apparatchik who kind of runs the folk ensembles, is very proud to say that we, you know, we've, we have some Yugoslav number for the, for the locals as a friendly gesture. And what they're playing is a, is a, a very well-known Serbian folk song, but they're playing it in Croatia, in Split, you know, which is the heartland of, <laughs> of anti-Serb feelings. Mm-hmm. So it was a kind of little perverse joke I introduced. But it's a beautiful song as well, this Svilan Konat. And the song with which Zula introduces herself at the folk ensemble, you know, f- at the audition, because she she kind of cons her way into it. She's no she's not a girl from the country. She's from a you know small town, nothing to do with folklore. And the song she she knows how to sing is uh, from a Soviet uh, musical called uh, Jolly Fellows, you know, it was a kind of Stalinist musical. Brilliant, brilliant music. But it was very eccentric for a Polish girl to sing a, a Soviet musical. And, and Victor and Irena, who were auditioning her, would have hated the fact that she's singing a bloody Stalinist musical. But it was so Zula, it was so her, that it, it's kind of, it charms the socks of Victor anyway. When you're constructing that, are those remembrances or just is that pure invention from, from your point of view? A lot of it is remembrances. You really? Know? This musical, my father, who was no communist, but he did adore this musical. <laughs> and uh, uh, and I remember as a kid, I, you know, I listened to this stuff, uh, uh, this, this particular, this song, Serce, which Lubov Orwova sang. Lubov Orwova, by the way, a friend of Chaplin's. And uh, so, so that totally rang a bell. And, they lo- and I realized that, you know, the, the whole mental landscape of the film is to do with my parents, you know, it's, and just even, even the Gershwin, you know, when I was a kid, my, my father played me the Rhapsody in Blue and all that kind of Gersh- Gershwin stuff. He loved it. And, uh, and it kind of impregnated uh, my, you know, whatever. <laughs> I suspect that all of your films are deeply personal, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what it's like to have someone, you know, kind of analyze, critique, or receive something like this that is so personal, that is so specific to your experience, and have them parrot back to you what they think it is or what they think it means. What is that like? It's good. I, th- I think, you know, I, it's, it starts from personal sources, but they try to make something that's would you say that that has many meanings, many layers? That's ambiguous, that's universal. So I'm very happy that people find their own way into it. It's uh, you know the whole film is quite understated, you know, and that's my that's always been my strategy, even in documentaries I used to make, to try and find universals in 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 what's historical and personal and real, you know, so, and to find a form that 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 kind of suggests things rather than spelling them out and. Uh, and fixing their meaning once and for all. Did Ida reset your expectations for what a film like this should or could do? You know, did you come in now with the expectation that more people will see it or that you, it will be received in a certain way? It wasn't uh, It wasn't a big deal, you know. It was just uh, the main problem is how do I make a film that works? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Sure, you did that already, though. That's over now. <laughs> I know, and now we're seeing it. With each film, you know, you, you know I'm my worst, uh, worst critic, you know, so in the end. And then the fact that it, it's it's traveling, you know, it's done really you know, well in so, so many countries now. I mean, in the States it hasn't opened yet, but 
but it's been it's done really and you've well. won prizes and you know prizes and, and above all you know it's a it's a popular film you know strangely it's the first time it's happened to me in poland it was like nine nine hundred thousand people went to see it and um, spain france england you know it's really quite quite amazing but one thing i realized when i'm already when i made my first documentary and i don't know it was 89 first documentary i really was in control of uh, that if you make something totally for your self, so not art for art's sake, but art for my sake, and that's personal, uh, it tends to actually turn out to be universal, you know? So so the more you mean it, and the more you try to like do it honestly, find the kind of original form for it, the more you have a chance that it will actually hit chords, um, you know, abroad or with other people. What are you going to do next? I have a couple of things, but but I'm in, in the whirlwind of this promotional tour now, uh, and I'm totally brainless, so I need to... <laughs> You've been brilliant so far, I, come I on. I need to... Oh, yeah, it's kind of raving. <laughs> Jet lag, <laughs> raving. Um, no, no, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's I mean, the traveling and stuff, it, it really... So I have to, you know, after all this, I have to decide which of the two scripts that I've written um, is, is, the, is, is the one that will carry me for the next three years. I end every show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing that they've seen. Yeah. I know you're a great student and teacher of film. Yeah. I'm really fascinated to know what's the last great thing that really moved you. I think it was The Serpent's Embrace, you know, this Colombian film. I, yeah. I it was just like last time I thought, oh God, I, that's, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have imagined this film and yet it makes great sense and it's beautiful. That's really so That surprised me and kind of came from, you know, unexpectedly. That's a great one. Actually, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Paul Schrader. Paul uh -huh. Schrader was here a few months ago. We were talking about First Reformed. Yeah. And he's been you, citing you throughout the conversation uh -huh. around his film and how impacted he was by the by your work and the conversations that you guys yeah. had. I'm kind of curious about that story from your perspective and you know what that was like and if you sensed that he was at work on something when you were having those conversations. Yes. I mean, he was very, he's very intense and he was a brilliant appreciator of, of Ida, you know, he kind of spotted things in it that nobody else saw. You know, the camera was static throughout, but but he spotted that in fourth minute, you know, it moved slightly to the right. Oh wow. So he really he really watches. Uh, I don't know. I think it's I think what really encouraged him possibly is the fact that you can make if you make a film cheaply, you can make it on your own terms. And you could and you don't have to worry about whether it's going to appeal to masses or to executives and you could make films about a film about spiritual things as well you know and, and as long as you find a form for it so maybe but having seen first reformed you know i, th I think bresson and and um, and bergman were much bigger influences than, than ida <laughs> so yeah but i so, think you got his brain moving i think so i think and also just encouragement to okay keep it small just do you know do it on your own terms or keep it small don't worry about the, the whole stuff around Pavel, thank you so much really appreciate you doing this <laughs> thank you Thanks again to Pavel Pavlikowski and, of course, Amanda Dobbins. This has been The Big Picture. Please tune in later this week where I'll have a conversation with Vice Writer-Director Adam McKay, one of my favorite living filmmakers. See you then. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of The Big Picture, which has been brought to you by Sonos. 
Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar for your TV and newest addition to the easy-to-use Sonos home sound system. Play everything you love and enjoy music, radio, movies, TV, podcasts, just like this one, and more, all with Beam's brilliantly clear sound. Beam is easy to set up and comes with Amazon Alexa built-in so you can enjoy hands-free control of your entertainment center. I have been using Sonos Beam for many, many months, and I'm a huge fan. I watch all of my movies through the Sonos Beam. So go to Sonos.com to learn more and order your Beam today. 